Good morning. Thank you for the lovely music. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good. You are a good, good Father. And I thank you for that reminder as we start this last lesson. <clears throat> Father, help us to understand your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Years ago, before Fixer Upper was a hit show, my husband decided that he wanted to buy an old house and fix it up and rent it out. He had seen his dad do it, so he wanted to give it a try. The plan was to rent it to low-income families so that the rent would then be paid for by HUD, or the Housing Authority. My oldest son was about to start school, and we wanted to send him to this little Baptist kindergarten, and that was going to cost money we didn't have. And so Bob's plan was to get into the rental business. He found a house, we took out a loan, and we got to work fixing it up. We were nothing like the show. We basically just painted and threw down clean carpet or fresh carpet. But this particular house was big, it was in a nice neighborhood, it had a lot of charm to it. And so we easily found a tenant, and she was qualified for HUD, and so we began making arrangements for her to move in. In the meantime, in order for us to get paid, the house had to pass inspection from the folks at HUD. So they came to the house to inspect it. And so one day, I get a letter from them with a list of all the things that failed that I was going to have to correct before they would start paying us. Most of the stuff on the list was very minor and an easy fix, but one thing was major. The inspector said he found a paint chip on the outside of the house, and apparently that was a serious offense. He said at one point, what if they try to eat this? And so he failed the exterior of my house, which meant that I was going to have to redo the entire outside. We got an estimate, and we learned that it was going to cost $15,000. Now, I think the house we paid like thirty-five, dollars so $15,000, when you have cleaned out your bank accounts and you are totally broke, $15,000 is like a million dollars. It was just so far beyond our reach. We had a tenant that was getting ready to move in with the one-year lease, but we weren't going to get paid until the outside of the house was fixed. It was one of those situations where you're just rolling, cruising through life, and then all of a sudden, your world is turned upside down. But... I had been studying the book of Esther. I had been teaching it to a group of fifth grade girls and I had been soaking it up as I was teaching. And so one day I took that inspection letter and I began to pray. I said, Lord, we need help. I, we may have really messed things up. I, I don't know, but as the way I see it, I've been just trying to be obedient. I've been trying to be supportive and submissive to my husband, and we're also trying to send our son to Christian school. Just, we need help. And if I understand the book of Esther correctly, long before they even realized there was a problem, you had been at work helping and preparing them. 
And so I have got to believe that that is the same with me. Well, soon after that, my husband, he came home and he said to me, hey, I've heard that the county is giving out money to people who are fixing up houses to use for low-income families to rent out. He said, so can you give them a call? And I said, okay, because that sounds like a real thing. And so I got out my phone book and I looked up the phone number for the county and I said, hello, by any chance, are you giving out money to people who are fixing up properties to be used for low-income families? And she said, oh, we just ended that. But we have enough for one more house. We have $18,000. And I said, you don't say. <laughs> could you tell me how I go about applying for that? Well, we had to fill out some papers and sign some forms, and because we already had the tenant, things moved very quickly, and within a few weeks, that house got brand new aluminum siding and soffit and fascia, courtesy of Butler County, Pennsylvania. <laughs> they did not loan us the money, they gave us the money. They gave us the money to do exactly what my husband had wanted to do. And every month, we would take the profits from that rental house and use it to pay for my son's Christian schooling. And every month when I would write out that bank payment and the school tuition, I would have this little mini celebration remembering of how God had rescued me. Let me ask you, how does knowing the word of God increase your faith? How does knowing and understanding about the sovereignty and providence of God increase your faith? How does it affect the way that you deal with things? How can it help you with the inspection letters of life that you get? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Esther chapter 8? Esther chapter 8. Our last morning in the book of Esther. We're going to start with 8 verse 1 says this. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Okay, the last time we were together, we ended with chapter 7. And we talked about the downfall of the pride of Haman when he was at the banquet and Esther so brilliantly exposed his plan and then he was hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. All right, now this week we're going to pick up where we left off. And if you were here that first week, one of the things that we determined was that when we are studying an Old Testament narrative, often you have to read the entire story before you are able to make good conclusions. Well, today is our day for that. So we're going to be making a lot of conclusions and, um, and, and do some review. Now, before we get to that, I have a new definition to give you, or another definition to give you. It's on your papers. Number one, it is the word dualism. 
Dualism is the concept that assumes there are two separate entities, good and evil, which are equally powerful. Dualism would teach that you have evil on one side and good on the other, and those two forces are horizontally battling. They're equally powerful. Okay? Now, in very big letters next to that definition, I want you to write unbiblical. Okay, unbiblical. That is not what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> okay, number two on your paper, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over Satan. We've said so far in this course that God was sovereign over the role of the dice. We've said that he was sovereign over the hearts and plans of men. And now this week, God is sovereign over Satan. All right, now that means that God is not battling Satan. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. God is not battling Satan. Okay, now I, I want to explain that because I don't want us to mister, misunderstand. There is a battle going on. You and I battle. We battle princes and principalities and powers. And yes, Satan is the ruler of this world. But God is not horizontally battling Satan. God is ruling over Satan. Okay? Now, it's very easy after a week like we've had where you've had stories on the news of Devin Kelly who went into a Baptist church dressed in black tactical gear and open-fired. And it's very easy to see things like that and think, oh, there's a battle going on. There's a battle going on between God and, and Satan. Okay, but that is what dualism would teach. Okay, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over Satan. God appoints his limits. All right, as, as this is John Piper puts it, Satan is on a leash. Okay, now, naturally, you hear a statement like that, and then, and then we start to thinking, well, then if God is sovereign, why doesn't he stop it? Why does he allow it to go on? If God is sovereign, why is there so much suffering and heartache? And why does it seem like evil is becoming so commonplace? Okay, th those would be fair questions. And Esther's going to help with some of them. Okay, so here's our next point. Number three, God is sovereign over Satan and evil and governs his enemies to perform his will. John Piper put it this way. He said, the enemies of God do not frustrate God's decrees. They execute them. Now we have um, got a taste of this in the book of Esther. God has not only been restraining evil and evil men, but he's actually been using them to advance his purposes. Okay, now you might think, okay, that's the case for Haman, but what about for us? What about when a man with a gun nonchalantly walks into a Walmart and starts to shoot folks? When he kills people that just stopped by for a few groceries before going home. What are we to think of something like that? How do we make sense of that? How do we see God's purposes in something like that? Okay, next point, and with something that we want to remember. Number four, 
we may never be able to discern this side of heaven, God's purposes in a tragedy or some event. God's ways of working are beyond our understanding. Last time, I read you the tweet from Desiring God that said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Well, the following year, they added this. Not only may you see a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, the part you do see may make no sense to you. On your papers, I have Romans 8, 28. You may know this from heart. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want you to underline the word good, and then I want you to underline called according to his purpose. What does that mean? Well, we've actually been referring to this all through the study. Do you remember um, the two objectives that I gave you when we defined providence? We said that God is, um, I had you underline them. We said God is working for his glory and for the good of his people. And we said you could say for the salvation of his people. God is at work for his glory and the good of his people. God is working all things together for his glory and the good of his people. All right, that means that sometimes in life things are going to make sense and they will look good. But it also means sometimes they won't. And for those times that they don't, you're going to need to use the zoom lens, the zoom out lens, the zoom way out lens, as in a heavenly viewpoint. You see, because most of the time you're going to be going through life with a close up view of a piece of the puzzle. And that piece in and of itself may not look good. It may be heartbreaking. It may be devastating. But the promise of God is that one day it's going to work together and be a part of something good. It'll be a part of something that's glorious and something that's for the good of God's people. That's the promise. I want to give you a Charles Spurgeon quote, number five on your paper. He said, judge not providence in little pieces. It is a grand mosaic and must be seen as a whole. That's good to remember. All right. Let's get back to Esther. Verse 3 says this. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Okay, let's stop there. It would have been very easy for Esther and Mordecai to just enjoy their new home and their new station in the court. But the Jewish people are still in danger. Now, so once again, Esther, she goes back to the court. She's got to hope that the king has not tired of her requests and that he holds out his scepter. Now, at this point, the king has already rewarded them handsomely, 
and he probably thinks that's all he needs to do. Remember, he's been dealing with selfish people that are just after the reward. But um, for Esther and Mordecai, the evil plan that affects the people is still unresolved. Verse 5. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the, the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Okay, now remember we said that the, the law of the Medes and Persians could not be revoked, it could not be altered, it could not be undone. So Esther goes and she begs the king for help. Now in verse 8, we read that he gives his signet ring to Mordecai and tells him to do whatever he needs to do. And so the scribes are called in because a new law is written. Verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. All right, the second law is written basically to neutralize the first one. Okay, and it's almost word for word. The Jews, they are going to be allowed to avenge themselves against their enemy. It's a great plan. The only problem is now the clock is ticking. Okay, it's a, it's a huge empire, and so the word needs to get out so that the people can um, be saved. All right, verse 14. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. All right, now notice the wording. It says swift horses rode out urgent or hurriedly. Okay, there's a sense of urgency, correct? All right, now the Persians just so happened to be famous for having their own version of the Pony Express. And so they are uh, called into action. Now, thankfully, now here's what's neat. Verse 9 tells us that the second decree goes out in the third month. And the day of destruction, if you remember, is set for the 12th. All right, so there's an eight-month time period that they're going to have to get their ducks in a row. But let's think, how was that date of destruction determined in the first place? Do you remember? Haman and his wizards got together and they threw the dice. Okay? But who controls the role of the dice? God has been at work helping them back when Haman was rolling the dice. God has been at work helping their problem before the Jews even realized they had a problem. Here's the next thing on our paper, number six. Esther shows us that God is at work in advance of the problem. I was listening to the testimonies <clears throat> that the girls gave back a few weeks ago. And although they did not coordinate what they were going to say, there were some similarities between all of them. Each one of them gave an account of how God had been at work in advance of their crisis. How God had gone beforehand and helped prepare. Sometimes it was in unusual ways 
that you wouldn't expect. Maybe God transferred them so that they just so happened to live near a good hospital before a cancer diagnosis came. Or maybe they sold a piece of property and kept a life insurance policy. Maybe a, maybe a, a spouse lost a job so that he was home at just the time when the family was going through some difficulty. But each one testified about how God had prepared them in advance. He was at work before the problem became a problem. Verse 15. <clears throat> then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Okay, notice something. The Jews have light and gladness and joy and honor and they haven't gone to battle yet. Okay, so why is that? Why all this joy and gladness? Hmm, let's think. There was that horse ride through town after days of fasting. Haman has died on the gallows that he built for Mordecai, and now Mordecai is standing before them dressed like the king. The tables have turned. Okay, here's our next point. God, number seven, God can work in extraordinary and unpredictable ways to fulfill his purposes. I wonder how many of you need to be reminded of that. When I was praying and asking God to provide so that I could send my son to Christian school, I never in a million years would have imagined that the fine taxpayers of Butler County would have been used to help me. God can use the unpredictable and the extraordinary ways to advance his purposes. He used a Jewish orphan. You know, we women, oh, sometimes we get so frustrated and we get discouraged. We think we have it all figured out. We think we know exactly what's going to happen next. And the reality is we don't. We don't. God is full of surprises. Maybe he's going to surprise you. Verse 17, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. All right. Now, I need to mention that this is almost universally thought to be the place where the story should end, right here, right at this spot, okay? There's joy, there's gladness, people are being converted, the end, okay? But that's not what happens, and uh, let's see why they think that. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain, mastery, hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. 
for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. I want you to think about for a minute of some of the Holocaust movies or stories that you have seen. Now, I want you to imagine that during that time, there was a little Jew, not, there was an unknown Jew that comes to a place of influence, influence. And he makes a decree that all the Jews living in Germany and Poland are allowed to gather and defend themselves. And so this little ragtag group of Jews, instead of being carried off to concentration camps, they completely annihilate the Nazis. That's what's going on here in the book of Esther. The Jews have mastery over their enemies. There is a complete reversal. And notice what impact does it have on the people that are watching? Fear. Fear. They realize this is not random stuff. Something greater is at work. Verse 5. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. All right, now a lot of people read that passage and, and, they, and they don't like that verse. In verse 12, we learn that 500 men plus the sons of Haman, they have been killed in Susa. Then the king reports this to Esther and asks, what is your next request? In other words, these people have been killed. Now, what do you want to do? All right, let's pick up at verse 13. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. All right, now, those ten sons, they're already dead, okay, because they had tried to attack the Jews, all right? But she's asking that they be publicly impaled on the really high gallows that their father built, all right, which to us sounds very barbaric, but um, this was an ancient wartime custom, okay? And one preacher explained that the Hebrew wording in this verse suggests that those ten sons were impaled together on the same stake like a human shish kebab. Okay, now, and um, it was intended to send a message. This is what happens if you try to kill the Jews. This is your fate. Now, as you can imagine, there is great debate over, <laughs> over Esther doing this. Some say she's being very vindictive. Others say, no, this is, she's being very merciful because to warn someone of coming judgment is merciful. Now, whatever her reasoning, she impales the sons and then she asks the king for another day. She asks for the edict to apply for the next day too. And this is where people have real problems. This is where um, you'll see people have major moral issues with this um, particular passage. They'll say it's overkill. They'll say it's revengeful. They'll say it's just bloodthirsty. And in, in our last lesson, I want you to think, our last lesson, Esther, she was so wonderful. She was this model of womanhood. We had her high on the pedestal. And then this way, we're pushing her right off. And we're wondering, is, is, this, the, is this the way the story's going to end? I mean, she starts out so 
compliant and sweet, and then why does she ask for another day to kill people? Was she being vindictive? Did Mordecai tell her to do it? Was it necessary? Was, it, was she going to need another day to deal with her enemies? Now, here's the thing. We're not told. A lot of speculation, but we're not told. And remember, we've said all through this book, in the book of Esther, we are not given the moral explanations as we go through this book. But we are just told the results. Okay, skip to verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Okay, they did not kill indiscriminately. There is no mention that they killed women and children. It says that they killed those who hated them, people who were attacking them. And they did not lay hands on the plunder. We're told that three times. Okay, the author wants us to be sure that we understand they did not lay hands on the plunder. All right, now, the culture said they could. Victors were expected to take the plunder. So this would not have gone unnoticed by the culture. But think about it. The very people that at the beginning of the story were immersed in the culture, now they're doing something to be completely distinct from it. Now, the fact that they don't lay hands on the plunder is probably suggesting that the people understood this was a holy war. And I want to give you a definition for that. On your papers, number eight. Holy war, a distinctive part of Old Testament history, and it's significant, Old Testament history, in which the Israelites acted as the agents of God's righteous judgment against sinners. You really get to see this when you study the book of Joshua. <clears throat> Instead of God sending fire and brimstone or a flood, he would use the nation of Israel. <clears throat> okay, and one of the rules about holy war is that there was no personal profit in holy war because you were not acting on your own behalf. You were acting as an agent of God's wrath. Now, because there's such an emphasis on not keeping the plunder, it's generally understood that the Jews saw this as holy war. Okay, but there is something that we need to see, and this is next on your papers. Number nine, God punishes his enemies. God punishes sin. Now, very quickly, I want us to be, be sure that we understand what I mean by the word enemy. When I say he will punish his enemies, am I just talking about the Hamans in the world or the Stephen Paddocks or the Devin Kellys? Am I just talking about the enemies that even the world recognizes as bad people. No. Okay, I have several verses on your paper that will help us with this. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies, underline that, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath, underline that, 
of God remains on him. Okay, the Bible teaches that we are born enemies of God. Okay, we are born loving ourselves. The Bible says we are by nature children of wrath, people that have not been reconciled to God, that do not have peace with God through the death of Jesus. They are under the wrath of God. Okay, that's the bad news. Let's keep reading. Esther 9, let's pick up at verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year, same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. All right, now, the remaining verses in the passage are giving us a good summary of just the whole story and then an explanation about the celebration of Purim. Now, if you remember, we said one of the first purposes back at the beginning of the book of Esther is to explain the Feast of Purim. Now, in the law of Moses, God had set aside certain feasts that were to be celebrated, but this celebration was different. This celebration was not the result of a commandment. This celebration was the result of grace. This celebration was a result of being spared from destruction, of God sparing them from destruction. Ladies, do you realize that if you are a believer, you have been spared from destruction? That Jesus fought the ultimate holy war on your behalf when he died on the cross. Because of sin... We are enemies of God, and we deserve to die. But the good news is that in his mercy, God sent Jesus Christ to die in our place. And the result of that is that it should cause us to live celebratory, joyful lives. Here's our next point. God's sovereignty and grace should be a source of gladness and joy in our lives. Now, in your small groups, today I want you to spend some time just drawing some conclusions about God and about the sovereignty and providence of God that you have seen in the book of Esther. I'm going to start you off with a few. Number 11, <clears throat> The sovereignty of God should embolden our prayer lives. Okay, this study should affect your prayer lives. Okay, the truth is there's no point in praying if God is not sovereign. Okay, because he wouldn't be able to answer your prayers. So hopefully after studying the book of Esther, you will pray more boldly. Now I want to explain that because there's some bad teaching out there on that. When I talk about praying boldly, I don't mean that you get all bossy and demanding in, with your prayer lives. Okay, I mean that now you can look at a situation and no matter how discouraging or how frustrating or how impossible it seems, you know God is sovereign that he can overrule, 
that he can reverse, that he can surprise, that he can answer it by working behind the scenes, he can answer it by doing something miraculous. And that should encourage and excite us to pray. All right, here's the next thing. Number 12, the book of Esther should encourage us to trust God even when we cannot see him or when things do not make sense. Remember we said that this is a book with no mention of God. A couple weeks ago, I shared the story about how my husband had been fired <clears throat> before we moved here. Well, shortly after that, we had a tenant that was receiving help from HUD. <clears throat> and HUD required that you go once a year to reapply so that you could be paid. Well, for some reason, they would not go. And so HUD was not paying and they were not paying, but they still stayed in my house, and they wouldn't leave. And eviction is very complicated. And so now, I have an unemployed husband with no money coming in, and two mortgages. And at the time, we had three kids in Christian school. So I was like, Lord, seriously? Now? I'm having tenant problems? I mean, I'm already freaking out about the no job thing. And so I, I spent a lot of time praying, and most of, or complaining, and most of my, <laughs> and most of my prayers, most of my prayers started like this, Lord, do you see me down here? Do you see me down here? Because I cannot see you. I cannot see you. I've got my magnifying glass out, and I am looking for just any clues that you are in this, but I cannot see you. Ever feel that way? It's times like that that we are going to have to trust the word of God and remember that even when we cannot see him and even when things do not make sense, that he is at work. He is at work in the shadows. He is at work behind the scenes. He may be silent, but he is not absent. Here's our next thing. Number 13. <clears throat> The sovereignty and providence of God is intended to be a comfort to us. It's intended to comfort. The sovereignty of God, first of all, it speaks of his power. Okay, and if God is good, like we sang about this morning, if God is good and he is big and, is he, and he is in control, that is to be a comfort to us. There's a video clip that was, um, I found on the uh, Gospel Coalition website. And it's a portion of a sermon that was given by a young pastor by the name of Josh McPherson. You may have seen it. It was all over the internet. Um, it's a very emotional sermon where he shares with his church family some difficult news that he had just received. I want to I wanna quote something he said. He said, I used to say years ago, when people would ask how I reconciled evil and suffering, with the reality of a loving God, I would say something like, God did not cause it, but he can use it for good. However, that answer quickly let me down after six pregnancies in six years, two ending in difficult miscarriages, a third coming dangerously close, and two resulting in severe birth defects. I do not say that anymore. Primarily, because I don't believe it 
to be true. End quote. He had just received news that the second of his four children would have spina bifida. And so on that morning, he preached on the sovereignty of God. And he basically made a case for how there is no comfort in difficulty or tragedy if God is not in control. If we remove the sovereignty and the providence from the equation, we remove the comfort. Now, in the sermon, he reads from his journal things that he had written just moments before hearing the diagnosis. And, and he's, as he's sharing this, there's just much tears and great emotion. He can hardly, really hardly speak. But he explains that the comfort is found in knowing that God does all things well and that there was a design in the suffering and that brought them hope. You see, when you're facing a second child with spina bifida, spina bifida, it isn't enough to hear that God allowed it. You want to know that God has designed it and has purpose in it. Because that's where the comfort is. I recently heard of this new mom. She was so fearful of SIDS that she was afraid to put her baby down. The mom wasn't sleeping. She was too concerned about the baby's breathing. And so she was spending her days and nights holding her baby. Now, I am all for mothers holding their babies. But this is, that's no way to live with so much fear. I wonder if you have fears about things that are beyond your control. I find that when I'm talking with women, that we women have a lot of anxieties and fears. And understandably, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. But how are we as believers to live in light of the difficulties and the things that we cannot control? How are we to live in light of ISIS and North Korea? or the concerning message from your doctor? How are we to live in light of SIDS or the lone gunman? Boldly, boldly, unafraid. Why, because those things will never happen to you? No, they might, they could but it won't happen to you because you put your baby in your crib or because you walked into the wrong Walmart. If you're a believer, your life is not in the hands of chance. It is not in the life, it's not in the hands of an evil enemy. It's not even in the hands of your own stupid choices. The answer to dealing with fear is trusting in the providence of God. Is trusting in, the, in knowing that God is sovereignly at work in the shadows, that he is sovereignly at work behind the scenes, that he is sovereignly at work pulling all things together for his glory and the good of his people. And that should help us to live boldly. Here's our last point. 
God's providence and sovereignty should embolden us to live godly and sacrificially. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning is, is pretty simple and basic. And that is, would you just help us to understand the sovereignty and providence of God and apply it to our lives so that we will not be women that are fearful, but that we can live boldly, that we can pray boldly, and we can let the world see that our God is big and our God is good. And Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.